Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our conversation here, sponsored by the Center for the Political Future. I'm co-director Mike Murphy. This is also, we're starting our podcasting, so send the message. We're going to record this and put it out on that internet thing I hear is big with you kids. So we're going to start, please, if you like the content, spread the word. We are very lucky today to have a particularly esteemed guest. And there's so much cool stuff Congressman Will Hurt has done in his life. I want to give a proper introduction. So he represents right now the fighting 23rd district of Texas in the Congress. You're in your third or fourth term? Third term. Third term. It is a fascinating district because it's basically west of San Antonio and 800 miles of border with Mexico. So it's rural, it's suburban. It is one of the hardest districts to win in the country for a Republican. You've got to punch way above your weight to do it, and Will's done it three times. Now, before that, he was a CIA officer in the clandestine services side, which includes the uh, undercover stuff, and spent 10 years there, nine years there, and then went on to form and start up and be part of a cybersecurity firm. He's a true expert in that area, and we're going to talk about that a lot. He's such an expert that when he got to Congress, and this may not sound like much, but for those of us who have been in the system, he got to be a subcommittee chair as a freshman, which they never do. And that was a function of his incredible talent on technology and the fact that the average member of Congress still is a little trouble changing the time on a VCR. So I think you you are towering above the norm. So it was a subcommittee under government uh, regulatory reform. I think they changed the name of that committee, uh, House Oversight and Government Reform on Technology and Cyber a true expert in that area, which is so critical, and we're going to talk about it and foreign policy. Now, Congressman Hurd announced that he would not be running for re-election, uh, and we're asking him about that and kind of what his future might be as well, and then we'll have time for your questions and comments. So let's start out on this world of cyber, because it's a word everybody in public policy uses. As somebody who's really taken a look with the Oversight Subcommittee on the government's IT infrastructure and then the private sector. How would you grade us, and what should we be doing in both cases? How, how ready is the government for the modern world of cyber threat? How ready is most private industry? And how can policymakers help us up our game there? Because it is really the new competitive space of the future. So I would say the government's a C-. minus. Okay. And then private sector depends on the industry. Financial services, probably an A. Utilities, A. Um, and then, um, you know, p- uh, telecommunications is pretty good. And then it drops off after that. And, and why, does, why does it matter? Most of the attacks that we have seen is taking advantage of a known vulnerability. Okay, this is something that there was a problem with the code that somebody knew how to exploit in order to get information. OPM, which now everybody in the country knows what the Office of Personal Management is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Five years ago, nobody knew what it was because they had a, a system that they knew was insecure, didn't fix it. We knew what the fix was. And 24.1 million records of people that have gone through a security clearance was stolen by the Chinese, right? This is outrageous. And then you look in the private sector, you have the Equifax breach, right? The, the, the number of, it was like a third of the entire country had their information stolen. Oh, and by the way, none of y'all ever opted in to give Equifax your information, right? Which is one of the things that, that is crazy. But but what what is getting scary now 
when you you saw the, recently there was two breaches in the last couple of days with Microsoft, and there is what's called a zero-day vulnerability. A zero-day is a problem with code that nobody ever knew about, which means there's not a fix. So when you identify it, it takes time to come up with a fix of it for it, and then it takes time to ultimately deploy it. So that's a scary um, when when you start seeing it's a big window, there's a huge window, again. right? And and so what do you need to do? The government needs to make sure and force that all your software is has the most recent versions, right? And as individuals, we need to do the same thing, mm-hmm. um, and and have a strong password, more than fourteen characters, and don't click on emails. Yeah, from yeah. people you don't know where they're from. So when I was in the cybersecurity business, you know, a lot of times we would get it. Every engagement, we always got in. Mm-hmm. One time, we spent a lot of time trying to get in using the you know misconfiguration of of hardware problems and software. We weren't getting in, but what we ended up doing, sending an email to an employee. That clicked on something, and we were able to get in. Mm. The biggest vulnerability is individuals. And ultimately, the, the scary part of this in the future, cybersecurity is going to come down to good artificial intelligence versus bad artificial intelligence. And so the speed of the attacks are going to increase. And, and the average large company in America gets, gets attacked 54.1 million times a year, yeah. which is which is crazy. So this is going to continue to be an issue and the public and the private sector has to work together. We have to understand the kind of information we should be protecting and um and we have to the, the we have to we have to do this ultimately um as a as a public private partnership. So I think one thing at least because I'm a geek for this stuff when I talk to friends and everything they're like, "Oh, okay, my Equifax might be known or my meta it bugs me, but what you know, what's that so worrisome?" And you might want to explain, but that gives Bad actors a way to find out who at the cruise missile engine plant has a kid with pediatric cancer and is going bankrupt, which is then a way to get to those people. So these, this data is much more weaponizable, I think, sure. than the average person thinks. So, so there's billions of dollars of fraud that is going on. So it's not just stealing a credit card and buying something at the store, right? right? It, is, it is using your information to create false accounts, get reimbursed sometimes by the federal government, um, and, and checks get issued by the federal government to someone they think they're supposed to be giving it to, and it was all fraudulently decided. Then you look at the theft of intellectual property, sure. and, and this is ultimately, we are in a geopolitical um, battle with the government of China, and the Chinese have stolen our information, and in order to get a leg, a leg up, they've broken into uh, systems in order to deal with with the next issue. And, and and right now, unfortunately, we don't have a framework on how you think about cyber war. A lot of people want to use kind of old school um, nuclear weapons, you know, strategy to deal with cyber. But the difference is when a cyber weapon is out in the the ether. Anybody can use it. Mm-hmm. If you drop a bomb or have an F-22, it takes years in order to develop that. And if the, if the North Koreans were to launch a missile into San Francisco, 
we know they know we how we would respond. We know how we would respond. But what is a digital act of war, and what is the appropriate response? And some of those things still haven't even been defined on how you deal with this with this potential threat. And it's not just us coming up with with, with what the rules of the road should be. We have to be working with our allies and our partners on things like this in order to defend our digital infrastructure. Because the reality is the technological change we're going to see in the next 30 years is going to make the last 30 years look insignificant. Right. And, and there's so many tools that are doing this. And in order to keep our, our, our competitive advantage, we need to be first. Whoever gets quantum mastery first right, right. is they, going to – They're going to crack every code there is in a week. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That's um, the quantum computing, which is worth – it sounds like something out of Star Trek, but it's amazing for both medical research, but it's a nightmare uh, for data security. Uh, so who's the worst or at least the most aggr- – who's got the most – the biggest punch and is using it right now as a state actor? China, Russia, is, or is it kind of equivalent? Uh, so they're using it for different things, right? Okay. The, the Chinese are using it as a tool of, national, of their national policy in order to um, outcompete and with with U.S. businesses, uh, the Russians, uh, Russian actors, um, are doing it for fraud and to generate money. But also another element: people lump disinformation mm-hmm. into broader cybersecurity. But but disinformation is is misusing information and weaponizing information. And this is one of the hardest things to to deal with. And in we, I always talk about the in 2016 elections. Um, it is, it is clear. Republicans and Democrats agree the Russians try to influence our elections. And, and they did this in order to erode trust in our democratic institutions. They wanted people questioning whether the legislative branch should be questioning the executive branch. They wanted the um, American public to question the, um, the media questioning the legislative branch. Right? They wanted to erode trust in these institutions because when we're talking about that, guess what we're not talking about? Right. Helping the Ukrainians kick them out of out of uh, kick, kick the Russians out of Ukraine. We're not worried about what the what the Russians are doing in in Georgia, and disinformation is part of covert action. The entity designed to do counter covert action is the CIA, but the CIA can't do covert action in the United States of America because of the National Security Act of 1947. So the and I'm not saying it should. But the entity best is best um, um, uh, organized to deal with this threat can't, right. and we haven't had enough conversations on how we deal with that element. Right. And and it is and then once you see a piece of information, can you unsee it? Yeah. Right. I, I love like law um, law shows when the, the the judge is like disregard that right. piece of information. Right. The bloody well, knife. You yeah. didn't see it. Yeah. You already heard it. Like how do yeah. I how do I unhear something? And so this is a broader branch, and some look at it as part of cybersecurity that we're not doing enough in, and and how to and how to defend against disinformation. Yeah. People in my business who run political campaigns that Elizabeth Bernie thing you saw at the debate. We have the digital technology to fake that so it never happened, but have the video that looks completely real, and you see it on the Internet, and as Will says, you don't unsee it. And because of social media, in the old days, you put an ad on the air, everybody would see it, including angry reporters, and there'd be a discussion of it. There were certain penalties. Now, with what we call side-to-side communication, where my sister, the teacher in Oklahoma, sends me the thing for free, so it doesn't require a campaign committee to do. Stuff can go sideways, and it's very hard to track, which means it's very hard to counteract if it's screamingly untrue. If you look at the history 
of uh, Russian intelligence actions, they, they since the, the 30s, have been interested in social division in America, often forced basically on race, who they'd fund and everything. So this is an old tactic to bring down our democratic values, and here they are with the power of the Internet doing the same thing. Man, you really know what you're talking about. Oh, you know? I, I've been in the pay of the FSB for years, but I, no, it, uh, I was an old uh, Russian area studies guy in the Cold War a million years ago, and then... Uh, and uh, your point on deep fakes, though, the, the, this notion of now, you know, changing a, a visual image in a way that's so good and how how do you determine? And and someone like okay, well, you know, on social media, you can say, you know, if a if an image is, is doctored. So if you use a filter, that's technically a doc, doctored image, right? Right. And so, what actually is a a true image? And so, this is an area that is going to get even harder to detect, and and people are looking to try to use it. Yeah, we're literally in political research now, using a thing where we turn on your smartphone. And we show you a movie trailer or a political ad, and the camera reads all your nonverbal. Mm, yeah. You know, and then not only learns about what you really think, but collects that information and gets smarter. So yeah, this one one of my big theories is that the government, which is still basically in a hundred year process to figure out how to regulate railroads. This thing moves so fast for it. Uh, what would you, if tomorrow you were speaker and you had a, you had every, you know, there's no politics anymore. Right. What like three things would you get the government lined up to do that would help create an environment where we both get a strategic advantage and we're as protected as we can? Well, be? it has to start with a privacy law, right? right. You, you have to have you have to have a national breach standard and privacy law. So. Mm-hmm. If information does get released or, or you are negligent in defending, then there's consequences. And that should be you know, a, a uniform standard. Right now you have 47 uh, different, different states. Then um, ultimately, how do you protect information? And I believe it's your information, right? It's yeah. like our information should be controlled. And I can make a case that what you click on, and what websites you go to is way more interesting than your credit card information mm-hmm. or your social security information. And you should be able to know how your information is being sent to you. When an ad gets displayed to you, you should know why did you get that ad. Or if an email comes your way, how did they, that person get that information in order to come to you? And and so so this is how we make sure that we do and And this gets even more complicated with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's only one thing that I think I've ever agreed with Vladimir Putin on, and that's whoever masters AI will master the world. And AI is based on data and who has the most data. And and, and ultimately, we should have liberal, democratic, Western values, little l, liberal values, define the ethics around artificial intelligence, not the government of China. And, and right now, the Chinese are a leader in, in AI. A lot of uh, folks in the U.S. and industry gets mad when I say that, but they, they don't care about civil liberties. Right. They don't care about privacy, and they're sucking information from everywhere. They are using facial recognition right now um, to put down the Uyghurs, an ethnic minority in Xinjiang province, and they're, they're, they're perfecting the use of that to, to use it across the country and then to export it to authoritarian regimes. Um, so all of this data um, is the coin of the realm and one to be able to protect it and in order to defend ourselves, but make sure that we're driving the ethical use of it is, is, is another thing. 
Yeah, it's a real challenge. I have a friend in Silicon Valley who has a great analogy for this. Think of AI as two whales having a contest to eat the most fish. Because the more the whale can look at data, the smarter it gets. So our whale, because of our privacy laws, swims in the Great Lakes. The Chinese whale swims in the Pacific. So which whale is going to get bigger? And it's a huge, sure. in a democracy like ours, it's a huge issue. You've actually been a bit of a maverick on some of this encryption stuff, yeah. uh, a political maverick, I think, in the data world, not at all, which is should they be able to crack your iPhone easily or not? You want to talk about Well, no, look. Um, well, the federal government should not tell a company how they should build their widget. Mm-hmm. We should be strengthening encryption, not weakening it. Encryption is a tool in order to protect ourselves and to protect our privacy. Why do we have civil liberties? Right? The, you know, the government, businesses have, have such a, an awesome power with the data that they're able to collect, the things that they're able to do. And the way that we protect against overreach is through privacy. And and it is it is something that often people well, I don't have anything I'm not doing anything wrong, um, well good that, that's good for you but you should never we should always be distrustful of these big entities and what they're doing and that starts with by you being able to control your own information and and that is and, and all these technologies are, are, are connected, five G. AI, quantum, um, encryption, you know, 5G matters. Look, it's going to be awesome Mm -hmm. to download a 4K video on my phone in three seconds. Mm -hmm. But what really is interesting about 5G is the latency. And latency is you do something on your phone, that command goes to some server somewhere in the cloud and comes back, right? And in 5G, that trip is going to take 10 nanoseconds. Mm -hmm. Why does 10 nanoseconds matter? We make decisions in eight nanoseconds. So we're basically be able to have the entire power of the internet in real time. And what is that going to allow us to do? That's how you're going to empower artificial intelligence. And then I say right now, artificial intelligence is dumb, but AI is going to get actually intelligent when you have five, when you have quantum and because of the capacity and the ability to kind of the, the, the problems that's going to get solved. So all of this stuff is, is connected and we should be, we should be leading the world on this. We should be working with our partners um, to make sure that we take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. And because we're going to need that technology for many of the problems we have in, in public policy, let's pivot over to foreign affairs, and national security. Mm-hmm. We'll do a little world tour of hotspots. We're going to start with the Middle East, which is a region you know very well. What's your current view of do we have an appropriate national strategy there? Tactically, we just had a big victory against terrorism with General Soleimani. But strategically, do you think we have a roadmap going forward? What should we be doing? Where should we make correction? What, what's your view quickly on the big picture in the Middle East? Sure. So, so I, I've disagreed often with this administration on, on their policies in, in that region. I have been supportive of the, of the latest efforts on Iran. Um, I would say broadly, and, and this is something I learned from a decade in the CIA, right? I was doing the back alleys at 4 o'clock in the morning collecting intelligence on threats to our homeland. Did, Two years in, these, in training, two years in India, two, two years in Pakistan, two years in New York, a year and a half in Afghanistan. And something I learned is be nice with nice guys and tough with tough guys. Mm-hmm. Right? It's that simple. Not the other way around. Oftentimes, yep. um, this administration is nice with tough guys and tough with nice guys. Right? Like, that's, not how you, that's not how you do this. Um, and when there is a vacuum... When there's a leadership vacuum, that vacuum would be filled. And, and ultimately, the United States of America has become a, 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 a global superpower 
right? A, a consequential nation, not because of what we have taken, but because of, of what we have, have given. And it started after the end of, of, of World War II. So, so in this region specifically, um, we should be supporting human rights. Um, we should be supporting our allies. The Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, were the most fearsome fighting force in that region, and they are our longest ally. We should be supporting them. Uh, you have to, ha- you know, we should always be discussing our footprint, our military footprint. But I also think that we have um, taken away some of the power and authority of our diplomats. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan Crocker, who was, um, you know, a, my my ambassador when I was in Pakistan, has been in every tough place. He says if you have more pumps and wingtips on the ground, it prevents boots on the ground. So the more diplomats, the more intelligence officers you have, it prevents your military from having to go in. So increasing that mm-hmm. um, is, 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 is ultimately important. And then, in, then in Afghanistan, you cannot negotiate with somebody who's killing you at the same time, mm-hmm. right? So, so the fact that you want to negotiate with the Taliban and not include the Afghan governments is, is, is wild to me. And you're, not, and, and you're doing it while they're still killing you, right? right? It, it, it absolutely doesn't make, make any sense. And, and again, uh, footprint, we can probably reduce to some point, um, but, but we should be supporting these entities because why? You cannot allow a place for groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS to reform and attack the homeland. Al-Qaeda, while it is a shell of itself, is still trying to, to continue to attack things here. I was in the CIA when 9-11 happened. On September 12th, 2001, if you would have told me there would have been in uh, uh, 19 years without another major attack on our mm-hmm. homeland, I would have said you're crazy, right? But there hasn't been because the men and women in our military, the men and women right. in federal law enforcement, the men and women in intelligence community, the men and women in the diplomatic corps continuing to protect us. Uh, so that's the reason, and it's a fraction of the cost to solve the problem there before it gets here. The case study of it is there is deterrence when we're out front in their backyard um, as opposed to sitting waiting for them to use our poor society to commit sure. terror against us. So um, the Army War College did a review of um, post-2008 in Iraq um, on Iranian behavior, and they found that when the Iranians did not suffer consequences for their activity, they increased their negative behavior. Mm-hmm. When there were consequences, they, they, they curtailed. And when you look at Qasem Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani was the head of the largest, most well-equipped terrorist organization in the world. And you cannot hide behind your uniform to prevent you from being called a terrorist. Mm-hmm. He was not in Iraq because he was transiting through to go to vacation in the Barbados, right? Right, right? He was there because he was planning with Iranian proxies to kill more Americans. And and so so now, Qasem Soleimani's replacement, you think he's going to go to Iraq anytime soon? No. You think any of the senior militaries in the IRGC is rethinking some of their behavior in those areas? Mm-hmm. And then now their proxies that are in Iraq are concerned that the Iranian government doesn't have their back, right? Which makes them even more willing to engage mm-hmm. with the Iraqi government. So that's an, that's a that's a time in, in where a consequence, um, you know, was a positive thing. But it's dangerous. 
it's it is an escalation, um, but we know that when there's a when there's a response, um, uh, um, behavior stops. Yeah, I thought it was good news a sign that the Iranian leadership is rational, which it generally has been, mm. that they didn't escalate conventionally because it wasn't in their interest. You know, mm. they're asymmetric players, which means crank up Hezbollah or whatever. But if their proxy forces are worried about the commitment and you can't get an IRG general to leave a bunker now. It's a step forward. For sure it is. You know, I'm a right-wing Republican, but I've I've been a Trump critic since about 1989. So I always have a view of him. But one thing that where I think he's had a blind spot, and you kind of touched on it with the Taliban, is he has a tendency to legitimize bad actors Mm -hmm. without a price. The the Koreans who, North Koreans who always wanted a summit, always wanted to be treated as a real, and they got it, and we traded that basically for whatever utensils the president ripped off from the meeting. I mean, there was nothing. The Taliban was going down that road. Mm -hmm. Do you think if President Trump is not reelected, and we don't know the outcome yet, do you think there'd be a return to normalcy in that, and how do we reset those relationships? Because we've we've kind of taught some bad lessons, act up, get a summit. Look, and and, uh, right now in Libya, you have this General Haftar, um, which... Uh, the UN, which we're supposed to be supporting, uh, disagrees, and that's preventing a peace from happening in, in Libya. Um, I, so, so um, I, I think that there has not been there's been damage. How much long term damage that is, and are we going to be able to to repair? Uh, to be frank, I don't know the answer. And and I I would also say that some of our partnerships with our allies, mm-hmm, sure, we should be we should be increase in cooperation with our allies um, that is something that could potentially have have long term um, long term implications as well and so you know the there there's consequences to to, to bad policy um, but but ultimately I think um, most of the world wants to see America be engaged um, I think if we can be engaged thoughtfully I also think we have to be countering the Chinese One Belt, One Road initiative mm-hmm. where they're using economic power. In national security strategies, you hear about the dime theory, right? Mm-hmm. Diplomatic, intelligence, military, and economic. Uh, we do not use the economic tool enough, yeah. and it's our soft power. We're the soft power superpower, but we keep a We're lot of it in the garage. It. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about One Belt, One Road. You might want to explain it because probably some people here are familiar, some aren't. But it's part of the kind of Chinese grand strategy, and it's, it's a huge deal. Look, it, it's the Chinese are trying to um, focus on countries that have resources that they need, and, and basically um, creating debt traps and um, programs in those countries, giving those countries money and resources and projects, which in the end benefit the Chinese government. Right. And and Sri Lanka is a perfect example. Sri Lanka had this port that was important, um, and they the Chinese gave them um, uh, debt financing that they couldn't manage. And now, guess who runs that port? The Chinese government, right? right? Um, they're doing uh, projects in Africa, and, and part of this is is the Chinese government growing um, their presence. They used to only care about their mainland, and now um, in in 2014 they built the first military base outside of mainland China in, in Djibouti. Um, and so, so they are growing their, their footprint. And before everybody said, oh, they just want to stay in their hemisphere. No, they are yeah. trying to become, they're trying to, to challenge the, the U.S. government. This is not my opinion. This is not from me collecting intelligence about them. This is what they have said themselves. They are trying to surpass the United States of America as the global superpower by 2043, 49, 2049, 
which is when they will celebrate 100 years of communist rule in mainland China. Uh, and that's in their, their documents. That's what um, Premier Xi is, is, is trying to do. Yeah, they're building a real navy, which is going to be interesting because we're going to be on the other side of a Monroe Doctrine situation in 30 years in the Pacific, too. We treated it like a lake. The next couple of presidents are going to have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. What's your view? I'm kind of a fan of the Graham Allison book. Um, which has the you know bestseller written all over it title Thucydides Trap, but it's a historical study I think of 13 case studies where the dominant power deals with an ascending power, and it's either war or peace, and it's more often war, and we're kind of in that situation with the Chinese. So I'm curious about what you would think over the next 20 years is our best posture. Clearly, alliances in the region. And Look, like we we got to reengage in, in the TPP, yeah. the Trans-Pacific yeah. Partnership, where if, if we want to establish the, the economic rules of the road, then we need to engage in pulling out of that. Yes, there were some elements that, that, I, that I thought should have been fixed, but I think there are things that we could have gotten to in order to show the rest of the region who have a problem with China um, that they can be that we that they that we have their backs. And so, if your if your enemies don't fear you and your friends don't trust you, um, that's a bad place um, ultimately to be. And 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 one of the reasons lack of leadership in that part of the world, you see Japan and South Korea, um, you know, uh, decades of tensions mm-hmm. flaring up and preventing their cooperation, and for us to be working together on North Korea, preventing us from be working together on on China, um, and so so showing a little bit more of that leadership and helping the Australians. We look for we look to the Australians um, to play a major leadership role in that part of the world, um, and and it starts it starts with that. And then ultimately, I think there is a capital class in China putting pressure on them. If a U.S. company or investor can't do something in China, then a Chinese company or investor can't do it in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. If you are forcing Microsoft to give you their, um, their source code, then, then you need to get this, you know, a Chinese company has to give their source code here in the United States. That's true reciprocity, and that would put ultimate pressure on the capitalist class in China, which influences their, their political leadership. So let's use that E in that economic levers that we have to pressure some of those decisions to prevent um, war. And, and the, the difference, um, when we look at the U.S. versus USSR, then Russia, our economies were not intertwined at any level the way they are, it is right now with us and China. Mm-hmm. It's in neither side's best interest in having a World War III, but we are in, a, in a, whatever one adjective above cold war is um, with China. I think that's what we're in. You know, Erskine Bulls has a great joke. I had it with him. Time for war. Step one in our war plan. Borrow money from the Chinese to pay our military. (laughs) So we are intertwined, which ultimately uh, is a deterrent to bad actions, or at least reckless actions. We we will see. Finally, Russia. Uh, They punch above their weight in troublemaking. Uh, We're going to need some kind of reset post-Trump, where in my view they've run pretty wild. What do you think next president ought to be doing about that, either Trump 2.0 or the Democrat? You cannot trust Vladimir Putin in the story, right? Um, uh, George W. Bush, you know, he had his infamous 
I've seen into his soul or something like that. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, President Obama tried to reset. Uh, President Trump is doing it. This is not – Vladimir Putin is interested in one thing and one thing only, reestablishing the territorial integrity of the USSR. He knows he cannot fight the United States economically. He know, he, what the, the, the entire Russian um, economy is a, is a little, bit, little bit smaller than Texas. Yeah. It makes it smaller than California. Um, and, and, and he knows he can't beat us militarily. That's why he has to resort to asymmetrical threats. And so that is going to happen. What we should be doing is, is supporting countries like Georgia, Moldova, because the amount of, of activity the Russians tried to do in our election, mm-hmm. what they're doing in those countries is crazy. Yeah, totally. and, and, and so nobody, most people don't know where Georgia is. They think it's a state, you know, um, rather than Georgia, the country. Most people don't, have never even heard of Moldova. But these are all entities in, in Eastern Europe that if we support them, this is how we deal with, with, with the Russian government. Um, he's just further, I think he's one year or two years away from being the head of of a Russian entity more. I think Stalin is the only other oh, really? Russian leader that he's been in power, huh. um, that's been in power longer than, than Vladimir Putin. You're going for the record. It's funny. I did an election in Georgia right after, during the Chevron Nazi, during his decline. And so we bring over the Americans to, you know, teach them democracy, which is a two-edged sword, because we immediately went to all the U.S. dirty tricks. And we're running negative TV ads, which they hadn't seen, and they're working pretty well, particularly in an industrial region in the south. And the Russians, you could see them everywhere. The the Russian operatives all like wore the same outfit. It was ridiculous. And they had a grip on the state power company, which in their politics they'd call the administrative resource, which basically was give everybody works on the National Railroad a thing if you don't turn in your ballot, you don't get your paycheck, you know, stuff like that we'd never see here. Anyway, we're making gains in about 20% of the country in this corner, and for the last seven days of the election, they turned off the electricity so nobody could watch television. Hadn't seen that fastball before. Right. And it worked pretty well. Yeah. But it is amazing what they do. And I am, for one, always confounded about this nice guy Russian leader thing. I remember I was in Moscow uh, in the pre-Gorbachev days. I was actually there when Chernenko died. And they are swearing in Andropov. And the Russian friend was joking about watching the press release. It'll be he likes jazz. Because every time we get a new dictator, they put out the line he likes jazz because somehow the Americans fall for that shit. And it's always the nice guy, you know, secretly loves Mickey Mouse movies. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's exactly what you think. The, like, the, the Russians, so, so a lot of the countries in, in Eastern Europe, they love Russian soap operas, basically. And what, what Russia does is when they sell that soap opera, the soap opera is 40 minutes, but they also sell 20 minutes of, of disinformation. Right. right. So so these these countries are actively showing and reshowing Russian disinformation because they can't separate that from the telenovelas or right. whatever that phrase is in, in Russian, right? Um, and so it's this crazy stuff like this happen, happens all over. Why are we not giving them episodes of Seinfeld right, totally. and old Oprah shows and you know Modern Family, right? Like, like totally. these are the things that we should be helping to export, and, and that goes a long way in helping us in promoting our, our soft power. It's funny, I pitched your old employers this. We mm-hmm. went and had a meeting about basically paying off Bollywood producers because restriped in other languages, mm-hmm. those DVDs are everywhere. They yeah. have a happy ending in New York. A funny story. Council's office didn't right. like it because it reeked of propaganda. Well, this is the CIA we're talking to here. 
Um, no comment. Yeah, no, exactly. Meanwhile, Murphy killed in freak Xerox accident two days later. Let's switch to the future of the grand old party. You hold one of the toughest districts. It is a huge, huge sign of the future that you've been able to win that because that district looks a, a lot more demographically about where we're going than where we've been. Yet, my friends, your friends in the Republican conference, they're a tribe where at times I think you were an uncomfortable member because they're still very much in the country club community of the white guys over 50 locked in vote. You know, the big win is to get a mention on Rush. It kills me the dominant communications organ of the Democratic base is the Internet, and ours is AM radio, which isn't going to be here in 15 years. How do you see the future of the party? What, what would be your advice to a party that is not going to be able to get reelected and hold power with basically Anglo-Saxon, middle-class, uh, cranky guys over 55, which is what, frankly, I, we are right now? I, I was talking to some students earlier and said, you know, or they reminded me of something I've said, if the Republican Party in America doesn't start looking like America and, and being attractive to all Americans, there won't be a Republican Party in America. Right. And why should Democrats and independents care about this is you need two strong parties to have a good competition of ideas in November. Um, the only way you solve big problems is doing it together. And this notion that unified government, you know, having one party in the White House, the Senate, and the House is the only way to get things done, um, that's not how big things have, have happened in the past. And there's three groups of voters, three largest growing groups of voters, communities of color, women with a college degree in the suburbs, and people under the age of 29. Our brand is terrible with them. Right, right. And because it starts with if if people think you don't like them, they're not going to listen to you. And 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 I've I've said before, um, and part of my language, I say don't be an a hole, don't be misogynist, don't be a homophobe, don't be an any kind of phobe, right? And 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 th- and that's that's the first step. And you know, I I, I was telling them earlier as well. I saw a stat that I didn't know, I didn't think was true that Ronald Reagan in 80 and 84 and then George H.W. Bush in 88 won the under 29 vote by 30 points. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. If you're under the age of 40 right now in many places in the United States, you have to whisper, <laughs> I'm a Republican. Yeah. Right? And, and so it starts with being com- competitive in some of these communities. And, and part of it is, look, Everybody always asks some version on this question, how'd the black dude get, get elected in a Latino district, 71% Latino district, show up, treat people with respect, solve problems. And if we don't start doing that, you're going to see some, some, some tough trends. And whether that's 2020, 2022, 2024, we know it's going to happen, and we have to get our act together in order to start talking to these communities. But, but also the other thing that's happening on the other side of the aisle is that Senator Sanders or Senator Warren is not the median of the Democratic Party. And so you have, you have Democrats and independents that are concerned where that direction is, and I think the opportunity is, in, is, is folks in the middle. And, and, and I've learned representing a 50% Republican district, a 50% Democrat district, way more unites us than divides us. And if you talk about that 80% we agree on, you can ultimately solve problems. And my experience has been, I'd be curious what you think, the ugly little secret is a lot of the people on the R&D side, the members, would rather get along. But they're trapped by the law of their primary voters, which means, you know, it used to be there were about 90 Republicans and Democrats 
who were caught in between the most conservative Democrat and the most liberal Republican. Now I think it's two. And so it's become so tribal, I'm right, you're evil, that they're afraid to operate at all. And, and it's frustrating to a lot of them, too. So uh, 2020, you have, going into 2020, you have 31 Democrats in seats. Donald Trump won in, in 2016. And you have, well, you now, it used to be three Republicans in seats that, Democrat, that Hillary Clinton won. I, I was one of those, those three in, that, that Hillary won in 2016. 19 years ago, that number was over 75. Mm-hmm. Ten years before that, it was in the hundreds, low hundreds. Ten years before that, it was about 150. And so you had more people that were willing to solve problems. And again, we were talking earlier, it's the way the primaries are built. Republicans and Democrats want these uber R, uber D seats um, because they, want, they don't want to have to have a tough competition in in November, and I think that's one of the things that has been yeah. that has that has exacerbated this partisanship. And I've seen it in my five years in Congress. When I first got to Congress, I was really shocked mm-hmm. with how warm relations were be- between members. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something that has really soured, mm-hmm. uh, especially now with with all the impeachment stuff that's happening. Well, let's end on that and then we'll go to questions. There is a little something or something's going on in the Senate yeah. today. I haven't checked the news. Any observations on all that? You were on Intelligence Committee in the House, so you saw the witnesses. Look, I, so, so I, you know, I, I'm on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, I went into this whole thing with an open mind to try to understand what, what happened. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues on both sides, they would see a piece of information and use it as an example. Aha, this is means yeah. for impeachment. The other side was like, this is exoneration. And, and for me, um, I've said impeachment is a violation of the law. Um, back in, in you know, re- Republicans tried to impeach President Obama like six or seven times. It never got this far to where it was. And, and I would be back in the district and you would have conservatives screaming at me because I didn't support the impeachment of President Obama because I said it has to be a violation of law. I did not see at, to the point at, to the point where I had to make a decision any evidence to suggest it was bribery or or extortion. And what's happening now in the Senate, I, I think it's ultimately going to be kabuki theater. And I, I don't think anybody thinks there's nobody there that already has their opinion made up. Yeah, it looks a little bit that way. Okay, questions, comments, insults. Uh, yes, I'll take, sir. I'll right take pearls, pearls of wisdom as yeah, well. Too. Yeah, as well. Um, hi, thank you very much for being here, Congressman. Um, I'm curious if... Um, Donald Trump's apparent ties to the Kremlin concern you at all? Look, I've I've been I've been very clear that um, uh, his position on how he's dealing with Russia, I I disagree with. When there was the what was the um, they did a a press conference together in Helsinki, right? I wrote an op-ed that said, in essence. In all my years in the CIA, I saw the Russian intelligence get the best of a lot of people. I never thought it would happen to an American president. Vladimir Putin was engaged in disinformation, uh, especially on Ukraine, with the American president sitting right next to him. And I thought that was gonna, that had disastrous effects on our policy and our support in the East. But but not being tough enough with 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 Russia. Now Congress has been pretty unified 
on the opposition and what the Russians are doing, uh, additional sanctions, and all those things ultimately were were um, were forwarded through the with with the uh, the administration followed through on on those things. Um, but but now um, the issue of disinformation is the thing that scares me the most because we're not prepared for it. hardening election infrastructure is is the is the easier of the task right um, because now we're looking for it uh, Department of Homeland Security has gotten additional money in order to defend against that but when it comes to you know the lies and 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 that kind of stuff uh, we haven't been prepared for that and, and it's not just the government's responsibility civil society the media I don't think the government should be telling the media what to do right I think the media is an important part of, of, of our democracy and so they have a role to play in this and 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 but but in the end, Russia is our adversary, not our ally, and we should be doing everything we can to kick them out of Ukraine. We should be supporting NATO. We should make that very clear. NATO has been responsible for 70 years of peace and prosperity in Europe, which has happened, which hadn't happened in a really long time, um, and, there, and it was built against the threat of, of Russia. So, so um, a, a very clear, strong policy on Russia is is important, and they are not friends. They are not allies. I don't think they ever will be until there's somebody in that position whose name is not Vladimir Putin. Just to plug, Annenberg is doing a great program on hardening election infrastructure, mm-hmm. which you can check out. One of the problems is we have most of it is county based. We have 3,300 counties approximately. So even if you're 90 percent efficient in hardening, you're leaving 330 counties that could be vulnerable. And the government is generally not a 90 percent plus efficiency organization. So it's a fascinating project. You can yeah, there's check about it out. A, there's about a hundred thousand um, uh, voting pre, you know, uh, uh, districts right across the U.S. and 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 that makes you know a, a macro attack on the ones and zeros and the, and the vote counting machines really difficult. That's why disinformation is way easier to do. Takes a fraction of the cost and creates even more drama. And again, social media goes out for free. I mean, I got ninety thousand Twitter followers. I can tell the wrong joke right now and, and be out of business by dinner time for free to around the world. All right, next question, please. Comment. Yes, ma'am. Looking at the current candidate pool for the on both sides for the twenty twenty election, who do you think would be the best president for our nation going forward to kind of heal what's happened internationally in the last three years? To heal, to heal what's, what's, uh, what we've done internationally, I think it's going to require more than just a president, right? It's going to require an entire uh, foreign policy team um, in order to put, to continue. And, and I would get, look, um, ISIS is, is a shell of itself, so is, is Al-Qaeda, um, but we still have um, some of these, um, uh, some of the wounds to heal with, with some of our allies. Um, who is who is best who is best positioned to do that? Um, my concern is that on the other side of the aisle, there's some folks that may not um, uh, they may not be nice with nice guys and tough with tough guys. That they want to pull everything out and be done, right? And I don't think that's I don't think that's a solution. Uh, that's a solution either. Um, and so, look, I'm always in a position. I, I am. I am a Republican. I generally, um, you know, support Republican I- ideals. And um, it is something that that's where that's where I'm, that's where my heart is leaning. Luckily, I'm never on a ballot. <laughs> I would say Biden or Buttigieg, um, just because I think they get the world. I'm terrified of Bernie or Warren in foreign policy. All right, other questions. 
Yes, sir. Hi. So you mentioned uh, being nice with night guys and tough with tough guys, but generally the tough guys don't comply with a lot of the diplomatic strategies that we're employing. And you mentioned the TPP and getting back in that. But with someone like China who continues to steal intellectual property, they don't really care about any diplomats or any official processes that we're going to engage in. So in, in terms of getting involved with, with you know, a, a power like China, we can't exactly have maybe the conventional strategies mm-hmm. that we use with our allies, which are diplomatic. And in terms of our allies, sometimes our allies don't live up to the expectations that we hold for them, mainly in the, cl- in the Paris Climate Accord, where they haven't been holding up their end of the bargain and in NATO as well. So I I just have an issue with sometimes that our allies don't do enough of what they should be doing and maybe we should hold them somewhat accountable. We shouldn't alienate them, but there has to be some sort of accountability there. So I think... uh, Of course, you you should hold your friends accountable and honestly, you should be tough with your friends. You should should make sure your friends are doing the things that your friends should be doing. I I, I agree with that that point. Um, However, if you prevent... Chinese investors from um, investing in some of American technology companies because U.S. investors can't invest in artificial intelligence companies in China, that's going to have an impact on Chinese behavior. If we moved some of the manufacturing that we do in, in, in high-tech areas to Vietnam or Thailand or to Taiwan or to Mexico so that we're not having to do those things in China, that has an impact. We get 80% of our rare earth minerals from China. Rare earth minerals go in everything from our cell phones to some of our complicated advanced weapon systems. Right? We shouldn't be getting 80% of, of that from the Chinese. We change that. That has an impact, right? And so it's not just one thing that's going to change their behavior, but there has to be consequences to their negative behavior, right? And part of that, and as I said earlier, they have a capital class, in China, and you put pressure on them, and then you're going to see them going um, to the the CCP, their 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 Communist Party, and and trying to to do changes. So, but the best way to do that is working with our friends, right? And making sure your friends know we have their back. And yes, our, our friends should be. Um, you know, there's always been talk about Europe not doing their two percent on NATO, and and guess a two percent of their GDP be towards uh, military expenditures. And we're seeing an increase in improvement that we haven't seen, and that's happened in the last three years. So so yes, um, our, our allies can be doing more, and we should be looking to them to do more. Um, but we should be showing we should be showing leadership in that area. And I was saying defense of the TPP. It wasn't a perfect trade deal, but it was really a political deal dressed up as a trade deal to create the closest possible alliance between the other Pacific Rim powers, which would be a counterbalance to the Chinese. I mean, one of the luckiest things we've got going right now is the Chinese aren't any good at making microchips. It's the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Europeans here. And so having a real integrated trade agreement and able to put capital into those other Asian economies as a counterbalance is a great kind of invisible fence on the Chinese who have this expansion tendency. I thought it was a great tragedy that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, for narrow American political reasons, bailed out on the TPP. Because from a strategic point of view, it was a huge win for us. And we didn't swing at an easy pitch there. And that has allowed the Chinese to take their game a big step farther. And, And three years of uncertainty with NAFTA. Right, right. right. Exacerbated. We should be talking about how we use North American competitiveness 
to be competitive in other parts of the world, right? If you go to any country in the world and say, would you trade your neighbors for Mexico and Canada? All of them would say we would rather have Mexico and Canada. Uh, we are lucky, and, and we should be looking at that and, and, the, and the, the, the competencies that we can develop um, with our three countries, and that's going to help us in, in these other parts of the world. And it's going to help us in this geopolitical battle that we are in with the government of China. Yeah, it's interesting. Petraeus did this study with a bunch of experts a few years back where he looked at the combined North America, Mexico, Canada, United States versus China. And because our resource advantage, our intellectual property advantage is still stronger, we're in the better competitive position if we get our stuff together. Okay, uh, I think we have time for one or two more. Thank you, and thank you, Congressman, for coming today. You mentioned that China would like to surpass us economically or in other ways by 2049. Um, I recently read in The Economist that comparing or adjusting for purchasing power, China is stronger economically. And paired with their stealing of intellectual property and other things, what should we be concerned about by 2049? And how real of a threat do you think it is for them to surpass us as a superpower by then? Look, I think it's a, I think it's a real threat, and we can't play their game, right? We got to change the game. And, and, and what do I mean by that? Let's look at artificial intelligence. Right now, most of the algorithms that are being de- developed and built require tons of data. We are never going to be able to amass the kind of data in order to train algorithms the way the Chinese are because they don't care about privacy and, and, and civil liberties. So our, our algorithms and tools when it comes to AI have to perform with less data. Right? And, and so we can't be trying to beat the Chinese at a game that we have already lost. Um, 5G is another example. Huawei, you've heard about this company. Um, Huawei already has 30% of the world market when it comes to 5G. It, they're cheaper, their stuff works really well, and they're basically giving it away for free because the Chinese actually, I, I can make an argument that the Chinese don't care about 5G. They care about all the companies that can be built on top of 5G. That's where all the next trillion-dollar companies were to come from. And, and why did Amazon, Google, Facebook, all the big you know, American companies, the tech companies, start here? Because we had the best 4G network, right? And, and so this is the same thing that will happen there. So we can't, we can't try to fight them at a game that they're probably – that they may be a little bit ahead of us or their trajectory is better. But I will always take American creativity, mm-hmm. entrepreneurship – and innovation over an authoritarian regime any day of the week. And, and so what should we be doing? One, when it comes to these technologies, we need to make sure the federal um, research dollars are deployed in the right way. We have to make sure that we are developing a workforce of, of the future to take advantage in these places. Oh, and by the way, if the Chinese want to steal our technology, let's steal their engineers. Right, no, right? H-1B. Guess and all what? Yeah, you're yeah, going yeah. to get a high-tech worker visa, and yeah. that, if that requires you to bring your parents, let's, let's evaluate that, right? So, so let's make sure that we have those folks that are leaders in AI and quantum and stuff coming here and innovating yeah. here at great campuses like this and, and my alma mater, Texas A&M University. Uh, those are some of the things we can do. And, and to your, your point, we always talk about the amount of, you know, China is going to surpass the United States in research dollars by the end of this year. Hey, guess what? If you put the number of man hours in research, they they surpass us a long time ago, right? And and so so recognizing that we're in a competition, and to be frank, I think that's only has happened 
in the last year or two. Before everybody thought, oh, the Chi- you know, made in China is a joke. Now people know it's real and people understand their potential impact. And so recognizing that we're in a competition, to be frank, is, is half the battle. And I said earlier, there's only two remaining bipartisan issues in Washington right now, the threat of China and cybersecurity. And so this is where we, you're still seeing some work being done in Congress to try to make sure we have laws that, that, that don't stifle innovation and make sure that we're ready to deal with them. Yeah, I'm really hoping the next president understands that we really need an Apollo moon launch kind of focus on this. Because mm-hmm. if we win quantum computing and, and AI, but the advantage on so many levels, it's not about weapons. Or I, the most impressive sentence I heard last year was from one of the top experts in quantum computing and biomedicine. Uh, at an Andreessen conference up in Silicon Valley, said, if we get quantum right in 20 years, we will treat cancer like dentistry. That's how powerful this is at understanding the physical world. So I think I'm going to let the great guest, Congressman Hurd, finish up with some remarks, and then thank you all for coming. So when you're in the CIA uh, and you're going to collect intelligence from somebody, you got to make sure you don't have surveillance. And I'm in a, a city I had not been in before, and I'm in a Toyota Tercel, small vehicle. And I turned down what I thought was going to be an abandoned alley. When I turned down this alley, it was like a parade. A couple thousand people in this alley, pack animals, three or four on either side of me. I'm driving about three miles an hour. And this woman walks in front of my car. And I mash on my brake, roll over her flip-flop, and drag her foot across the concrete. Bust her toe wide open. The meat's hanging out. It's nasty. And she looks in the car and realizes that I'm not from around there, and she starts screaming bloody murder. And I have a couple hundred people banging on my car, right, and shaking my, my car. And, you know, the CIA taught you in this case, get off the X. The X is a location where something's going down. The last place you want to be when something's going down is where it's going down. But my Tercel wasn't going to be able to get me that far. I had a weapon, but not enough ammunition for this situation. So I did what they least expected, and when I was told not to do, I get out of the car. I unfolded my six foot four frame out of the car, and everybody was shocked that I got out. But two, I was like twice the size of everybody else. And in that moment, they were stunned. I said, "Does anybody speak English?" I knew some of the local language were not good enough for this situation. And this one kid, I remember his face for the rest of his, my life, parts the crowd, and he raises a finger in the air and he says, "I speak the English." I said, sir, where's the closest hospital? And he said, about four blocks away. I said, fetch me a rickshaw. Rickshaw is a scooter with a carriage. Rickshaw comes up, and I make a big display of taking some money out of my pocket, hand it to the woman. I said, take her to the hospital immediately. And she gets in the rickshaw. My little translator gets in the rickshaw. And the rickshaw drives away, and the crowd starts clapping. They're patting me on the back. One dude even opened the car door and helped shove me back in uh, to, my, to my little car. And the sea of people part. And I'm driving away, and I look in the rearview mirror, and everybody's waving, right? And my heart is beating because I thought my mother was going to get a phone call that no mother ever, ever wants to get. But one of the things, I tell that story because there are thousands of men and women every single day and every single night putting themselves in harm's way for us to enjoy the liberties that we are enjoying right now. And it's, it's awesome to represent my hometown, but it's even more awesome to represent those people. And I'm hoping, and what I love about going across college campuses is meeting young, smart, 
talented, amazing young men and women who are looking for ways to serve their country. And so for those of y'all out there that are thinking about that, thank you. We need you. Your government needs you. And you're going to be the reason why we're able to stay the greatest country on the planet. So I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for having me here, and and God bless y'all. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 